turn to John chapter 13. And as you're turning, I want to tell you that I promise eventually to get to this passage, but I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about background to begin with. Have it open in front of you there, John chapter 13. Okay. Now let me give you just a couple of things. By the way, we're in a series. The first study I did uh, in this series was uh, Ending Well, Hebrews 12. Uh, the second study I did was last week on Facing Temptation, Luke chapter 4. This morning I'm going to be dealing with a subject that I've entitled Walking Clean, and it's John chapter 13. Next week we'll be looking at uh, Giving Forgiveness. Now usually when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about being forgiven. I want to talk to you about Giving Forgiveness. And these are the things that have been the most important to me personally in my walk with the Lord in the years of ministry, whatever years those have been. And so I'm just wanting to share, share them with you. So this morning we're going to be talking about walking clean. And when we get into John 13, we're going to be in a passage that uh, is a little bit of a, a, a negative subject. We're dealing with the sins of a believer. You'll understand this before we're finished. But it is a little bit negative. You know, sometimes Bible teachers are a little hesitant to get into negative issues. And frankly, I am. I'd much rather deal with positive subjects and so on. But I'm grateful for negative things, the reality of negative things. If you went out in the parking lot to go home today and that little gizmo under your hood called a battery didn't have a negative post as well as a positive post, you wouldn't be able to go anywhere in your car. And it's a little bit that way in our walk with the Lord. There are some negative issues that we have to deal with, and there are so many overwhelming positive issues, it's incredible. So without embarrassment or without an apology, I'm going to deal with one of the more negative issues this morning, the sins of a believer. Second thing I'd say by way of background is this. You notice in the passage we're going to read in a moment in John 13, Peter is the only guy that's referred to. Now, they're all there, but Peter's the only one referred to. I've got to confess to you, ladies and gentlemen, I have a like and affection for Simon Peter. Uh, he's always one of these guys who suffered from the proverbial foot-in-mouth disease. He was always saying the wrong thing at the right time and doing the right thing at the wrong time. He just was. Uh, I, I think he was kind of a spiritual drive-by shooting just waiting to happen. That was Peter. And every time I look in the mirror, I see a little bit of the image of Peter, more of Peter than any other person in the New Testament, okay? But that's okay with me, and I'll tell you why. Nobody was used of God anymore in the pages of the New Testament maybe other than Paul the Apostle, was Peter himself. Now, how in the world can uh, God use a guy that messes up nine ways from Dallas every day? Well, the answer is God isn't into watching our mess-ups. God is into what our heart is all about. And one thing you'll have to say about Simon Peter, he had a heart for the Lord. He really did. You remember that time they were on board the ship? The storm came up. And Jesus came walking. They didn't recognize him at first. One of them said, there's a ghost. And another one said, oh, I think that's, Pete, uh, that's Jesus. 
And uh, Peter said, Lord, if that's you, bid me come to you. And Jesus said, come. Peter got overboard. He started walking on top of that water. And then he started thinking like a, I used to say like a Baptist, because that's most of the people I was talking to. Uh, but he started thinking like a bunch of Christians do. And that is, he began to look at the waves and the wind, and he thought, what in the world am I doing out here? And he started sinking. And we preachers really take him to task, that little warble in our voice that makes us sound spiritual, and we say, oh, Peter, if you just kept your eyes on Jesus, everything would have been wonderful. You know, it dawned on me one, of these days, one day that he was the only one of those guys that got out of that boat. And by the way, how did he get back on board? Walking hand in hand with Jesus. My good friend Jack Taylor, an evangelist in another denomination, is fond of saying, you're never going to walk with Jesus in real fellowship unless you're willing to get your feet wet getting to wherever Jesus is. And I think that's right. But Peter, we're going to learn a lesson from him in this passage of Scripture. Third thing I want to say by way of background is this. This 13th chapter is in the context of 13 through 19, or 17 actually, the upper room stuff. You know, it's where Jesus was apart with his disciples, and it was within 24 hours of him dying. Now that's hard to understand or, or remember, that from John 13 to John 19 involved 24 hours or less. Now, what that means is this. Whatever Jesus said or did in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 were very important words and things he did because they're his last words. Last words are incredibly important. I'll never forget, I was pastoring in Seminole, Oklahoma, a little church outside of town, and we had a lady, an elderly lady who was about to die, and the family called and asked me to be with them in the hospital, and I was glad to, and I did. And so we were around there. There was a son and his wife and daughter and her husband, and here was our, their mother uh, and mother-in-law, and she was elderly, getting ready to die, and they asked me to pray. And so I did. I, we took old hands. I bowed my head, and I began to pray. All at once, we heard a noise. She had awakened. She had been in a semi-coma kind of state, and she awoke. She woke up. Now, you know what we did. We dropped our hands, I quit praying, and the family leaned in carefully because they were assuming, correctly so, that they were about to hear the last words of their mother, their mother-in-law, their loved one. Now, that's what I want us to do this morning for just 30 or so minutes is lean in and listen carefully and look closely at whatever Jesus is saying in John 13, the one we're dealing with this morning, because it's some of the last things he did this side of the cross. And that means I think they're terribly important. Now, that brings us to a two-point little study we're going to have. You have the outline in front of you. And the first one is what I call the problem with the defiled heart. Now, the reason uh, I start with this is because that's what John uh, 
13, beginning at verse 3, where Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, and he was about to return to the Father, he took off his outer garment, laid it aside, took a basin of water, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Those are all the verses in this chapter. And then I think it's in whatever it is, verse 6 or 5 or whatever, he came to Simon Peter. There he is. There he is, old Simon Peter. He's about to do it. He's about to mess up. And so Jesus knelt. Now Jesus had already washed the other guy's feet and been wiping them with a towel. And he was doing something that had significance. And he came to Simon Peter. And the King James says, uh, uh, Simon Peter said, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? That's not what he said. That's English. What he said was, what in the world do you think you're doing? Now, the reason I know he said that is because uh, Jesus was doing the act of a servant. And he came to Peter, and Peter he wants to be spiritual. In other words, in his mind, oh, Lord, I'm the one supposed to be washing your feet, not you washing mine. And so he said, what in the world are you doing? Now, Jesus answered him, what I'm doing now, you don't understand. But it won't be long until you do. And then Peter made this statement. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Have you ever told God never? <laughs> I told the Lord never one time. I was in the uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological uh, Cemetery. I mean seminary. <laughs> and I was studying for the ministry. And it was the most miserable time of my life. I knew if I ever got out of here, I'd never get back in the city limits of, of, of Fort Worth again. And I made a promise to the Lord. Lord, you get me through this. I'll never get in Fort Worth again. I'll never be in Fort Worth. I won't even visit. Well, it wasn't but 12 years later, I was pastoring a church three minutes from that big seminary. Now, do you know why? Because anytime you say to God, never or always, uh, you're assuming the posture of Lord. And so I was assuming posture. I know I'm, you know, I'm the Lord of my life. I'll never get before the word. And he's going to show us who the Lord is. And the Lord's name is not Paul. It's Jesus. And so I pastored that church. That was a great experience and all that kind of thing. But the point is, Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Now, Jesus responded. You can see it there in the verse with this, this statement. If I wash you not, you'll have no part. Now, it doesn't say part in me. It says you'll have no part with me. Now, here's the word that he used. Uh, if I wash you not, nipsastai, that's a Greek word. And the idea is exactly what Peter said. You'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. That means you'll have no fellowship with me. You'll have no enjoyment of me. Doesn't mean you'll have no part in me. That's a relationship. You'll have no part with me. And so Peter, <laughs> here he is, this guy. He said, oh, then Lord, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head. And In other words, he said, give me a bath. Isn't that just like Peter? And Jesus, in I think it's verse 10, said this. No, you dummy. Now that's the Burleson translation. He that has been bathed, because that's what Peter said. Lord, 
give me a bath. Don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Jesus said, no, he that has been bathed. Now that's this word. Illuminos. He that has been bathed doesn't need anything except his feet washed. Now, what in the world is this thing of the bath and the wash? He said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no fellowship with me. Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, you won't have fellowship. Then Peter said, oh, then give me a bath. No, you've all been bathed except one. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all bathed. Now, what in the world did he mean washing their feet? Is that a literal thing? Uh, some people believe it's a third church ordinance, and I respect them. I really do. They have such a delight in gathering. I've been in some of their meetings on a Sunday night and sharing, washing one another's feet. I respect that. And the tradition that I'm out of at the moment, the, the Baptist church, Baptist said, no, we don't believe it's a third church ordinance. Baptist said, it's teaching humility. We know that, and we're proud of it. <laughs> nah, you know... I appreciate the Baptist too, but the problem is uh, he wasn't teaching humility. Now, you can make that application legitimately, but that's not what he was teaching in this passage. And remember, we're going to listen carefully and lean close so we can get what he's really teaching here. Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't, you won't have any fellowship with me. Oh, then Peter said, give me a bath. Jesus, no, you've already been bathed, all of you, except one. Now, was the bath literal? Did he mean Judas hadn't had a bath? Did he mean, I walked by you a while ago, Judas. Boy, you forgot to take a shower this morning. That's not what he's talking about. He, as Jesus always did in the New Testament, so much of the time, used the natural element to teach a spiritual reality. In other words, it's a picture. The bath is a picture of a relationship. All of you have been bathed, been made totally clean, which is what the word bath means in the Greek, except Judas. Now, when Jesus then said, if I don't wash your feet, he can't be, in my understanding hermeneutically, principles of interpreting the Bible, can't be using it in a literal sense because the bath isn't a little. It has to be both symbolic or both literal. I take it as both symbolic. The bath is a picture of a relationship. The foot washing is a picture of being willing to have the dirt that collects in your life as you walk as a Christian washed away, cleansed away. We call it the confession of sins. We call it dealing with the dirt. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. From the time you become a believer, that's part in me, having a relationship, till the time you get home to heaven, you're going to have a part with me. But you won't be able to unless I'm able and free to deal with the dirt in your life. In simple language, ladies and gentlemen, we have to deal with sins in our life as a Christian in order to enjoy our journey in a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? Now why? And by the way, the best illustration of this that I can think of is the city of Jericho in the Old Testament. It's another physical thing that gives us a spiritual picture. 
You remember how the children of Israel walked around the walls and following the instruction of the Lord, they shouted and the walls fell in and Jericho, a huge city, was captive to them. Down the road was a little city by the name of Ai. Not nearly as formidable. Not nearly as difficult. And so Joshua took enough when they got around Ai, only they didn't surround it and win the victory. They were soundly defeated. Joshua came back crying to the Lord, Lord, what happened? We were victorious at Jericho and we were defeated at Ai. And it doesn't even make sense. And the Lord simply said, Achan's the problem. You remember Achan? He's the guy that stole several shekels of Babylonish garments and silver. And when the Lord said, destroy all the material stuff, destroy it all. He stole some and hid it under the floor of his tent. Nobody knew he did it except God. And when are we going to learn that the only thing that matters is what God knows is real? And so the story, how they had to find out about, they had to deal with Achan in the valley of Achor trouble, the valley of trouble. Why? Because they were troubled in their journey with God when there was sin undealt with. Sins in the life of those who made up Israel. It's only a picture. Here Jesus is showing in the new covenant, it's the same thing. We have to be willing to deal with it. Now why? Is it because uh, God's mad at us when we fail, when we mess up? Does he get angry with Peter when Peter denies him? Does he get angry with those who fail? No. No. Now listen, Christian, in the new covenant, you and I will never know the anger of God. All of the wrath of God against sin was poured out on Jesus. So in dealing with our personal sins, it's not a matter of God having uh, to be satisfied in some way. That's not it. He'll never love you more when you... Don't sin and he'll never love you less if you do sin. He loves you, period, all based on who and what Jesus is and did. You see? Then what is this deal with dirt? Now watch. It's in the nature of sins, dirt, in the Christian's life. It's in the nature of sin that it causes the one who commits it to hide. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? God came walking in the cool of the day. Now, they, did, they dove in the bushes to hide from God, but they'd already sowed fig leaves. Put on the fig leaves. You know why? Because they were hiding from each other now. Prior to the entrance of sin, they had had an open, uh, uh, reciprocal, uh, total uh, relationship with each other as man and wife. Now they hide fig leaves. So fig leaves, why? Because they're ashamed. They're nakedness. Uh, they're hiding from each other. Then when God came, they dove in the bushes. It's in the nature of sin that it causes the one who commits it to hide. Let me illustrate it for you. When I pastored, I've got one little guy in mind. I don't even remember his name now. I'm going to call him John. John is seven or eight years old. He is one of the sweetest boys you've ever seen in your life. He loves me as his pastor. I love John, that little boy. I just love him. Every Sunday morning, I grab him and I hug him. John, good to see you. Brother Paul, good to see you. He said, Pastor, you're the greatest preacher I've ever known. I say, John, you're the smartest boy I've ever met. <laughs> I mean, John and I have a thing going, okay? Let's say one Sunday morning, we don't have it here, but there's a, you know what that choir balcony is? 
where it used to be called uh, in the old standard, you know. Uh, let's say that I was up preaching and moving around, and I saw behind that wall, that little awning, I saw a tear in the carpet. The choir had gone down to hear me preach. And so I saw, I saw a tear in the carpet. Now I was pastoring this little church, a little church, and I, do, I can do anything. So on Monday morning, our custodian on vacation, I decided I'm going to fix that tear. So I wear my work clothes, a little thing, you know, with some stuff, fix it. So John and his dad come to the church building Monday morning. And little John, like any eight-year-old does, he wanders around while dad does business. So John, he come now, by the way, I, and this is the reason you'll notice a made-up story. Let's suppose while I'm working on that thing, my billfold is so full of money, it begins to hurt me. <laughs> so I reach in and I take my billfold and I lay it on the pulpit. And I get back down on my knees working back there. Johnny comes in. He doesn't see anybody. He doesn't see me. But he does see that billfold on the, on the pulpit. He looks around. And he takes that billfold, stuffs it in his pocket, and starts running up just as I look up and I see him. Now, am I angry at him? Well, you sorry little outfit. I'll get you if it's the... No. And by the way, neither is God when you do stupid things. Okay? Or when I do stupid things. He's not angry. He's not going to get us. Let him show what happens. I walk out the auditorium and there's John with his father. This time I walk out and I say, Hi, uh, Joe. That's his dad. Hey, John. That's my little eight-year-old buddy. Only he doesn't run and grab my leg and say, Brother Paul, I love you. Uh, Brother Paul, it's good to see you. He sees me come out of the, and he runs and hides in a room. Now, why? It's because this little trigger called conscience has been tripped, and he's ashamed, and he's afraid, and what's Brother Paul? Brother Paul's not going to like him anymore, not going to love him anymore, and he hides out of shame. And ladies and gentlemen, every time we sin as a believer, we hide from somebody. We'll hide from a spouse. We'll hide from our children. We'll hide from our friends. We'll wind up trying to hide from God. And by the way, one of the greatest places to hide from God is a church. Because you can get so busy doing things in a, physical, in a physical manner that are religious in nature that you never really have to come up close and sit in Papa's lap and listen to him as he talks to you and relate to him as his own kin. Are you following me here now? This is the reason we have to deal with If we confess our sins, oh, he's faithful and just in all of the forgiveness. But the thing that happens is we begin to enjoy our walk with each other. And that's what Jesus is teaching to Peter and those fellows in the last 24 hours of his life. Now notice, he's dealing with Peter because he's the illustration and uh, the defilement of Peter's heart, I believe, is pride. Okay? I think he's proud that uh, he's been able to do what he's done. He was even courageous enough to chop off an ear because he wasn't going to let anything happen to Jesus. I've really got it together in Peter's mind. Okay? Now, Peter, as far as we know, wasn't guilty of adultery. It wasn't guilty of alcoholism. It wasn't guilty of drug addiction. It was guilty of something far worse than that. You say, Brother Paul, what could be worse than adultery? 
alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, being proud that you don't have that problem is a worse problem than the problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, it's the idea that in my heart, I don't realize that to reject someone because of their behavior or their looks or their ethnicity or their gender or whatever, to reject them because they're not what I am is about as defiled as you can get. And that's a little bit where Peter was. Now trust me, I know Peter well. I've studied him. And I think that's where he was. And notice it came in spite of him being a man of privilege. He had the privilege of walking with Jesus. In spite of being a man of prominence, he was one of the big three. He had a problem. Because it's always a problem when you get defiled. Let me show you where Peter would find himself. You remember that Luke 15 chapter? The parables of the lost things, the lost coin, the lost lamb, the lost boy. And he took his inheritance, went off into the far country. And the father was waiting. By the way, have you ever noticed the father didn't go? Now, the woman swept till she found the coin. The shepherd left the 99 and went after the one. Have you ever noticed the father didn't go after the boy? You know why? Because whatever Jesus is teaching in that parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal wasn't a piece of property like the coin nor an animal like the lamb. He was a human being. And sometimes even our kids as human beings have to be able to face the consequences of their choices without us cleaning up the mess or they'll never come to themselves. And sometimes the hardest thing in the world for a parent to do is nothing. It's tough. It's hard. You remember how that boy in the far country, what have I done? Probably had an indentation right there. What have I done? I'll go to my father. You know the story. He went to his father. The father loved him. He was waiting for him. He met him. Kill the fatty calf. We're going to have a party. But there was another brother in the family, and he was in the elder field. Now, in the, in, the, in the field working, he was the elder brother. If being in the far country is a picture of the bars on Friday night, and I think it probably is, being in the field is a picture of being in church on Sunday. In other words, being where the Father's work is going on. Now, here's the deal. Did you know you and I can be as far away from the Father in the field doing the work of the Father as one can be in the bar on a Friday night? Do you know why? Because being close to the Father is not a matter of geography. It's a matter of relationship. And the brother came well, you didn't kill for me, the fatted calf. The brother was in his pride wondering why the grace was extended as it was extended to the younger brother. That was Peter. Now, he didn't know it at this time. Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you will. When did he? That little girl, the Gentile fire. I know you. You were with him the third time, and you denied him. The cock crowed. Jesus turned. He'd already told him, before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Why? Because now he's been faced with his own defilement. But here's the second point I want to make, and this is where we're going to close. The problem of the defiled heart, that's what Peter shows us. But there is uh, the power of a 
desperate cry. That's also what Peter shows us. Because you'll notice Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. We know what that means. Peter doesn't understand. But Jesus is teaching him something. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no fellowship. Oh, then Lord, give me a bath. No, you'll need a bath. You've all been bathed except Judas. The bath's a picture of a relationship and he doesn't have one. But this is a picture of dealing with the dirt in your life. He was showing Peter that he has to deal with the dirt. But Peter didn't know he was dirty until he denied the Lord. So what do you do when you realize that you're dirty? Oh, your dirt may not be of the actions of the younger prodigal son. It may be the attitudes of the elder brother's heart. But we discover we're dirty. Now watch. I used to get mad at those who went to the bars on Friday night. Then I found the parable of the prodigal son and saw how the father loved that boy. Then I got mad at the elder brother because of his pride. So then I realized, oh my stars, he's a picture of me. But I found out the father loved him just like he did the younger brother. I realized my actions or attitude do not impact the love of the Father at all. Oh, the Father was grieved by the elder brother. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we... But look, when we get desperate enough that we're willing to deal with our sin personally, not the actions of somebody else necessarily, but the attitude of our own heart. When the Lord started showing me this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, it has been a trip, and it has not been a pleasant one. I have gone inside of me and I have found control. I have found uh, anger. I have found blame. By the way, that's always the result of pride. The language of pride is, first of all, it's blame. Too proud to admit where I'm at fault. Started in the garden when God showed up. Who told you you were naked? Peter said, what is this woman you gave me? It's all her fault. In other words, Lord, if you'd just done a better job of giving me a marriage partner, I wouldn't be in the mess I'm in right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Blame is always the language of a prideful person. I know because I'm a master at it. I'm a blame giver. Some people are blame takers. Mary is a blame taker. I'm a blame giver. In other words, I can make other people feel their failure and I'd rather do that you know why but I'm too proud to admit my own problem is Mary started studying the same Bible and started looking at the same relationship skills I do and now when I say uh, honey if you just she'll say now wait a minute I do a lot of things wrong but uh, I'm not the cause of whatever you're doing or feeling sometimes I wish she hadn't grown up quite so much but it's the truth you understand what I'm saying well, when do we deal with this pride or action? By the way, the boy in the far country, it was a whole lot more obvious to everybody how he messed up. The elder brother, not so obvious. But when do we all walk together enjoying our relationship with the Father? When this. We get desperate enough to deal with the dirt in our own heart, in our own life. I close with this story. Uh, Watchman Nee told it. Somebody did. There was an old Chinese preacher years ago. 
And they used to walk across China before the communists took over in 45. And a group of little Chinese preacher wannabes, preacher boys, would travel with him. And they'd ask him questions and he'd teach them. And they'd ask and he'd teach them. There was one boy who always asked him, uh, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And the old preacher never answered. But the young man kept asking, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And the old preacher never answered. The young boy thought, well, I don't know. I don't know why he's hesitant. And then he'd say again, sir, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? No answer. One day they were fording a stream about waist deep. And as they were going across the stream, the old preacher took the young boy and tripped him, had him underwater by the nap of the neck. And the young boy thought, well, he's going to teach me something by this, I'm assuming. So he would kind of acquiesce, you know, acquiescent. But all at once, he began to realize my breath is almost gone. I've got to get up. And, he, and the guy just held him tighter. And finally the young boy thought, oh my word, if I don't get up from here, I'm going to open my mouth to breathe. Only it won't be air, it'll be water. And it's the worst thing that can happen. And he began to thrash around and the old preacher stood him up. And he said, now young man, when you're as desperate to know what it means to be filled with the Spirit as you were for that next breath of air, I'll tell you but not until. How many times we pray, Lord, revive us. Revive my marriage, revive my family, revive my church, revive my nation, revive me, revive us. I think sometimes God is wisely saying, not saying a word until we get desperate enough to deal with our own dirt. Now, I want to read it to you. We usually read it at the beginning, but I want to read it now. Listen to it, if you will. Listen to it, we're done. John 13. Jesus, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, that he was about to, that he had come from God and was about to return to God, he arose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said unto him, Lord, what are you doing? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but you will very soon. Peter said unto them, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. Simon Peter said, and Oh, then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He that is washed doesn't need anything except to he that is bathed. By the way, the word washed in verse 10 is the Greek word bathed. He that has been bathed doesn't need anything except to wash, and there's the, the Greek word wash, his feet, but it's clean every whit. And you're all clean, but not all, for he knew as you betray him, therefore he said you're not all clean. So after he'd washed their feet and taken his garments, sat down, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me master and Lord, and that's good because that's who I am. If I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. 
Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You're to wash one another's feet. Now that's the preemptive strike for next week where we're going to look at the matter of giving forgiveness. Because giving forgiveness to another person is tantamount to washing their feet as your feet have been washed.